Good evening. Thank you all for coming back tonight and trust that you have availed yourself of a handout that was out there in the narthex as we are bringing our study to the book of Ecclesiastes to an end. I'm going to start with a review. And uh, I have tonight brings us to an end of the study of Ecclesiastes. We begin with a review. Ecclesiastes is a great treatise on the meaning and purpose of life. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless apart from God. Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. People are looking for meaning and purpose in life. The fact that people are looking for meaning and purpose in life is seen anecdotally in the popularity of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, a tremendously uh, popular book. Just out of curiosity, how many people read The Purpose Driven Life? All right, a, a number of people. Uh, that certainly gained a lot of popularity, not just in the Christian world, but in the non-Christian world as well. And I have uh, selected some quotes from Rick Warren's book. They are f as follows. I quote, Unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. You cannot arrive at life's purpose by starting out with a focus on yourself. You must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You are made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. It is only in God that we direct our origin, uh, excuse me, it is only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, and our identity. The underlining is mine. Every other path leads to a dead end. Many people try to use God for their own self-actualization, but that is a reversal of nature and is doomed to failure. You are made for God, not vice versa. And life is about letting God use you for his purposes, not you're using him for your own. And uh, I thought that was very succinctly said, uh, very appropriate, and very true. Uh, it also is very much in keeping with what is given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So the pro proposition in the book of Ecclesiastes comes in the form of a question. What benefit is there in all of man's striving, all his toil, all his labor, everything that we're trying to accomplish? What benefit is there in all that? Ecclesiastes 1.3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? When all is said and done, what difference do our lives make? Ecclesiastes 1, 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. There are some key phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, this is review. Vanity of vanity occurs 37 times. It refers to life's lack of meaning or purpose. Number two, under the sun is used 27 times in this book. It is referring to an utterly an earthly perspective apart from God. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is a very important uh, interpretational aid. 
looking at life under the sun. That is only from an earthly perspective. Uh, Taking God out of the picture, life looks far different than when God is inserted into that picture. Under heaven is used only three times in the book. It is referring to viewing life from a godly perspective. And I've included all three references. First, Ecclesiastes 1.13. And I applied my heart to seek and to teach out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Ecclesiastes 2.3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Uh, Of all of the sections, I think Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is a very key element that we're going to find that there are uh, renewed references throughout the ensuing chapters back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1. There's a time for every matter, every uh, purpose under heaven. Number four, uh, there is meaning, appropriateness, dignity, purpose for every event in life when viewed from a heavenly perspective. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. When life is lived in keeping with God's purpose, there's a beauty to all of life's circumstances. And so we talked about the significance, the importance of using wisdom so that we are experiencing the time of our life in the appropriate season of our life. That as children, we learn to be carefree, we learn to be uh, happy, Uh, We learn to seek to find fulfillment in life as we give ourselves over uh, to accomplishing the will of God as uh, we move into middle age, uh, young adulthood, uh, middle age, uh, that we uh, carry out those plans, those uh, goals that we have established for ourselves uh, to the glory of God. And then we talked about old age and uh, some of the limitations that come with, with age and some of the difficulties, the hardships that are associated with age. And we mentioned the fact that that is extremely important in answering the question, why has this happened to me? There are two answers among many. And certainly they are not the exhaustive answers, but they're very important answers. Why has this happened to me? Well, first is that there are consequences to our decisions. Um, if we experience certain situations in our life at the wrong time, if if we're not wise in how we live our lives, it's going to bring a measure of misery and hardship and difficulty. The second is that there are experiences that we can just associate with the particular season of life that we're in. There are issues that are associated with middle age and middle life crises, especially when we have come to a realization that perhaps we are not living our lives the way that we should, and we made some poor decisions when we were younger, and now we regret them, and we, we perhaps want to try to start over and uh, make a new uh, course for ourselves. There's the empty nest syndrome that comes when your children are grown. 
and there are aches and pains that are associated with older age. Uh, our bodies break down, they wear out, and there was that graphic description of the bodies falling apart that we looked at in the book of Ecclesiastes. So as I get older, I can expect to become more feeble. I can expect that my health is going to deteriorate. I can expect that there are going to be certain problems that I'm going to face. That should not send me for a loop. That does not mean that as a Christian that I am wrapped in cellophane and protected from those particular issues and difficulties. Uh, but uh, they come, they come. And so Ecclesiastes 3.2 describes it and following. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And of course, those are complete opposites. And yet, though they are complete opposites, there is an appropriate time for each one of those things. Number six, when life is lived only under the sun, there is no meaning, dignity, or purpose to life. Life is random and nothing more than the product of chance. Ecclesiastes 9.11, again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now we emphasize that the time, again, is saying that the particular uh, period of life that we are in is going to manifest itself. But then the second part chance happens to them all. Uh, so as far as an ungodly perspective is concerned, there is a tremendous randomness to life. That life doesn't turn out the way that we had planned, the way that we had schemed, the way that we had worked. And we wonder why it is that the race isn't always to the swift. Why the strong don't always win the battle why the wise are not the richest people on the face of the earth. Or why those with knowledge don't experience great favor. And so the world's conclusion to that is, well, it's chance. It's bad luck. It's bad karma. It's just the way things happen. No rhyme, no reason, just meaningless. Just meaningless. It's just unexplained chance. B, when life is nothing more than the product of chance, then choices are irrelevant. Sacrifice is meaningless. So, again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, so then why run? Nor the battle to the strong. So, why work out? Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the those with knowledge. So there is no motivation, there's no impetus to try and get ahead in life. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's worthwhile. It is meaningless. It's meaningless. So seven, however, life is not ruled by chance, but by a sovereign God. Ecclesiastes 9.1, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, 
how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know what is before him. So we don't know what is going to befall us. Whether it is love or hate, whether it's good or bad, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we don't know what our future is, but we do know that our future is in God's hand. That God is sovereign. And we should not doubt God's sovereignty based upon how our life seems to be working out. God's purposes are not being overthrown. God's will is being accomplished. And I stressed in this particular section of the book of Ecclesiastes that Satan is never mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. Satan's name doesn't come up. For in the overarching purpose of God, for the child of God, Satan is really almost irrelevant. For Satan is incapable of doing anything to us that God does not allow. If you remember all that Job had uh, befallen, though Satan was active, Satan could only do what God allowed him to do. And if you remember, Satan, excuse me, Job never ascribes the maladies, the losses that he experienced to the evil one. But he ascribed them to God and said, I will trust him. I will trust him. So the child of God doesn't just bemoan the fact that the evil one is out to devour him, and we don't minimize the activity of the evil one, but we don't glorify the evil one to the point where he has that kind of control over our lives. So we can always have the solace that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. The good and the bad. God is sovereign over them all. Number eight. Solomon's search for happiness and meaning in the end, in life ends in finding purpose in God. Solomon comes to two basic conclusions about life. Psalm concludes that life is meaningless apart from God. Ecclesiastes 12.8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. When you take God out of the picture, there is very little reason to live. All of our hard work or accomplishments ultimately mean nothing at all when viewed apart from God. You can't take it with you. Ecclesiastes talks about that. Ecclesiastes talks about the fact that when it's all said and done, if there's not a life to come, if there's not a God then life is pretty meaningless in the end. B, Solomon concludes that life has meaning only in relationship to God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, the great concluding verses. The end of the matter, all has been heard. After a full search, here's the conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We're going to unpack that a little bit. But, you know, people agonize over what is God's will for my life. What does God want me to do? And as you agonize over that question, 
what God wants you to do is keep his commandments. Obey him. Follow his word. That's your whole duty. That's your responsibility before God. And as you live that out, you will accomplish God's purpose for your life. He will lead, he will direct, he will sovereignly oversee. What we need to be most concerned about is day by day, making decisions that are in keeping with his word, making decisions that are in obedience to what the word says. And as we do that, we're going to be accomplishing God's will. I'll deal with verse 14 later. So the theme for tonight is Solomon's conclusion is important. We must heed it. So why is Solomon's conclusion important and needed to be heeded? Here's the new material. Well, first, Solomon's conclusion is important because we can learn from it. Solomon was very wise. Ecclesiastes 12.9, besides being wise, besides being wise, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30 describes the wisdom of Solomon so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Solomon was the wisest man that walked upon the face of the earth apart from the Lord Jesus. Solomon shared his wisdom with others. Being wise, the preacher was taught the people knowledge. This morning we had an excellent message and which our, our brother shared with us, the need to follow uh, the wisdom that our parents teach us, that uh, is handed down from our grandparents as they follow uh, the wisdom that God gives. Well, Solomon was the wisest there was, so we should follow his wisdom. First Kings chapter 4, verse 33 uh, says that he scribed plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And what I wanted to point out there was the fact that the people from around the globe, Queen of Sheba most notably, came to Solomon looking for wisdom. So we should heed the wisdom that's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's wisdom was expressed through many proverbs. Ecclesiastes 12.9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. That knowledge is found in the, the uh, plant life and uh, hyssop and uh, that grows upon the walls. He taught them animals and, and birds. Uh, knowledge is factual information. Wisdom is the proper application of that knowledge. So it's important to have knowledge so that we have the proper basis to make decisions. Uh, we need to be informed. Uh, we need to be people of reason. And we need wisdom to make the proper application of that knowledge that we obtain. Because the scripture says knowledge puffs up. Sometimes uh, people just become arrogant over what they know. Uh, people become wizards at trivia, etc. But God did not give us the scriptures simply so that we could master Bible trivia and uh, win a board game. But uh, we need to take that knowledge 
than and apply it in wisdom. So just how many Proverbs did Solomon author? 1 Kings 4.32, he spoke over 3,000 Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. Solomon exercised great care in conveying wisdom to others. Solomon exercised care in the words that he chose to use. The preacher sought to find out words of delight. Ecclesiastes 12.10, like the way the NIV translates that, the teacher searched to find out just the right words. He spent time weighing the words that he used, thinking through the nuances, the application, how important that is in our conversations. Uh, I personally have grown to detest uh, texting and emails. Uh, For me personally, because I have a tendency to respond too quickly. I feel like I'm under the gun. I feel like, you know, somebody gets this, they want an answer. <laughs> and as soon as I hit the send button, I think, oh man, I wish I would word that differently. I, I, I wish I would have said that differently. Uh, I don't like what I sent. And I am not good at whatever, what is it when you use your thumbs to type text? Is there a word for that? No. Okay. But you all know what I'm talking about. I'm terrible at that. I'm here doing this, and my fingers are too big, or my phone is too small, so I'm hitting the wrong numbers, so I speak into my phone. That is dangerous, people. <laughs> I've been shocked by some of the things that I've sent out <clears throat> when, I, when I read what uh, I thought I said and what uh, Siri thought I said, and it was quite a different thing, all right? But the point is, he used great wisdom in the words that he wrote. Application. Just as others look to Solomon for wisdom, we are to look to Solomon for wisdom as well. They often sought only his earthly wisdom. We're to seek spiritual wisdom. We are to realize that we can learn from others. And it's only the fool that will not be instructed. So we need to learn. Thirdly, Solomon's conclusion is important because it is helpful. Solomon's words are motivational and inspirational. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like goads. Goads were cattle prods that were used uh, when uh, you couldn't get a cow to go forward. There, there are a lot of biblical imageries that are associated with farming and agriculture, etc. And one of them is backsliding, backsliding. And uh, backsliding has a very graphic image. If you've ever tried to lead a cow that didn't want to go forward, it plants all fours and just pushes back against the person who's pulling on the rope. And they're just pushing back, refusing to go in the direction that the person is trying to lead them. They are backsliding. So you take a metal prong and you poke them in the rear end in order to get them to quit backsliding and to get them to go forward. Well, that's a picture of inspiration, to move forward, to go on, to make changes. So Solomon's words are motivational, inspirational. They are 
The words of the wise, like goads, that prod us on in the right direction. B, Solomon's words are dependable. They will hold up. They're like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And so you put a, a nail, a hook into the wall, and you hang something on it, and it doesn't fall out of the wall. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It will do what you expect it to do. Those are Solomon's words. Solomon's words, and now here's the most important thing of all, are sourced in God. Verse 11, they're given by one shepherd. They're given by one shepherd. Uh, the uh, collected sayings in verse 11 are referring to the other scriptures. That Ecclesiastes does not stand alone. Ecclesiastes is one source of God's wisdom among other books of the Bible. And they're all given by one shepherd. They all are sourced in the Holy Spirit who leads and directs and inspires the word of God. That's, of course, the ultimate reason for Solomon's wisdom is coming from God. Even as we heard this morning, uh, Pastor Cruz telling us that our wisdom that we share as, uh, as fathers needs to be sourced in, in God and his word. Number four, Solomon's conclusion is important because it is the only conclusion that is valid. Solomon provides a warning to his readers regarding other sources of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, my son, beware, beware. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, be warned, my son, okay? Uh, take heed. Solomon warns about everything that is in addition to the scriptures. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Uh, take a guarded approach to any source of knowledge or wisdom apart from the scriptures. That is not to say that there isn't any wisdom or knowledge apart from the scriptures, but be careful that you always maintain a distinction between the word of God and any other source of wisdom. That includes, that includes not only secular sources, of wisdom, but spiritual sources of wisdom. Never get to the place that you read a study Bible and the notes in the study Bible are as reliable as the scripture itself. Always maintain the distinction. When I'm reading a note in a study Bible, I'm reading nothing more than a commentary. I'm reading nothing more, that is not any more authoritative than a commentary. It is a person's understanding and interpretation of what this passage means. Doesn't mean it isn't helpful, doesn't mean it isn't even reliable, but it does mean that you read it with a certain awareness. You read it with a certain apprehension. You read it the way the Bereans did, and that is to search the scripture whether these things are so. Solomon warns that there will be no end of books giving advice on a myriad of subjects. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. Boy, how true that is. Of making many books, there is no end. 
My digital library of Logos has 10,000 books in it. 10,000 books. I have 50 commentaries on Ecclesiastes that I work through as I, as I read the scripture. There, there's just no end. I don't own them all. I don't own them all. By any means. And I don't have time to read much more than what I read. Just realize that there is no end to other sources of instruction. D, Solomon warns that seeking the answers to life from the wrong sources can make a frustrating and discouraging task. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So children, young people, if you want to have a Bible verse to memorize, here's a good one. And when you're tired, you know, and, you're, and your mom and dad say, why are you tired? Well, much study is a weariness of the flesh. Okay, so school is a weariness of the flesh. But in reality, what it's saying is that it can be, it can be discouraging rather than encouraging. It can have a negative effect. The more you read, if you're not careful, the more confused you can become. The more you read, the more you realize that there are 13, 14, 15, 20 different approaches to a particular portion of scripture. And after a while you begin to throw up your hands, unless you continually just go back to the scriptures and you simply say, what does it say? Realizing that other people have agendas, realizing that other people make mistakes, realizing that there is a lot of deception, even in the Christian realm, unfortunately, of which people want to say something, and then they proof text from the scriptures a particular point of view that they want to get across. They start with an assumption, and then they seek to prove it from the scriptures. Unfortunately, that is all, all, all common. And if that is going to be the way that you're going to study the scriptures, you eventually will throw up your hands and say, how can we know? How can we know? And I'm sure you have heard it said, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Have you heard them say that? Right? You can make the Bible say anything you want. Not if you take it in context. Not if you're using the proper grammatical study, etc. It's like any other book in the sense that it conveys. And it's unique, and the reformers used a term, and it was uh, the perspicuity of the scriptures. It's a big word, but it simply means that it's understandable. It's open to all. You can read it. You can trust it. You can believe in it. Study the scriptures. And if there's anything that I can encourage you to do is study the scriptures. Study the scriptures. I hope you know me well enough that I'm not against other study tools and other resources. And, you know, I, I use them immensely. But never, ever, ever go beyond the scriptures. Start and end with the scriptures. That is the most important book to study. You want to know the Bible, study the Bible. Don't study about the Bible. Study the Bible. 
Use the aids that will help you in the study of the Bible. Uh, I remember a, what I thought was a wonderful book, a wonderful quote from Tozier. Tozier was asked, what is a good book? And Tozier responded, a good book is a book that causes you to put it down and pick up the Bible. A motivational, inspirational book that continually points you back to the scriptures. That's what we want. To be continually pointed back to the scriptures. That's why when I do these handouts, I bold so you can see where it's coming from. Where the scripture says this particular point. Because we want to continually go back to the Bible. Number five, Psalmist's conclusion is important because it's definitive. Here is the bottom line of all that has been understood. Here is the cliff notes on all that has been written. I don't know if the next generation knows even what cliff notes are, but they were abridged editions of uh, books that you can read to get a synopsis and find out who the main characters are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here's the bottom line. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Solomon says he's done an exhaustive study so that we don't have to. He spent his life looking at these issues so that he could just boil it down and tell us what the answer is. So after everything's been heard, after everything's been studied, after everything else has been viewed, weighed, taken into account, here's the bottom line. What is the most important aspect of life? What is the wisest thing to do? Answer, verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's it. You want a platitude? You, you, you want something to live by? You want a goal to set? And what is wonderful about this, it is universal. It's universal. It applies to each and every one of us who are sitting here tonight. You want to live your life wisely? Fear God and keep his commandments. You want to make good decisions? You want to do that which is going to bring joy and happiness to your life that's going to find meaning for those that follow you, that are going to bring honor and glory to God, that are going to bring reward, etc.? Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's it. That's it. This is the essence of what life is all about. For this is the whole duty of man. If you do that, you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. If every morning you wake up and just say, by God's grace, I'm going to purpose to live in fear of him, and there are many ways to understand that statement of fear, but it is in awe, it is in reverence, it is in acknowledgement that God is far superior to myself. So I am not going to stand in judgment over God's word. I'm not going to decide what a part of God's word I'm going to obey or disobey. I'm not, I'm not going to make my decisions as though God's word is simple advice that I can take or reject depending on how I feel at the moment, but rather to hold God's word at such a place of authority 
that I will submit myself to what it says. I will take it at face value. And you see, here's where all these other sources can easily be taken away as people try to prove and disprove certain aspects of the Word of God. Okay? Um, we don't want to be simple bumpkins, but at the same time, we don't want to profess ourselves so wise that we think that we can pass judgment upon what God says. So we fear God, we hold him in awe, we hold him in reverence, we acknowledge that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts. We recognize that we're not on the same plane. So what God says, we're going to do. That's the essence of wisdom. That's the basis of making good choices in life. That's going to achieve our duty before God. This is the God-given responsibility that each of us has. Number six. Solomon's conclusion is important because there is an accountability in life. God will pass judgment on every act that we can commit here on earth. For God will bring every deed into judgment. B, God will pass judgment upon every act, whether public or private. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. So it isn't just what other people know, and it isn't just about what we portray to others, but God is going to judge us both for that which is done publicly and that which is done privately. Nothing can be hidden from God. We can have a certain reputation because people don't know certain things about us. And we might be pretty good at deceiving others. And we might be able to project a certain persona, a certain godliness, of which we know there is a whole other aspect to our lives. It's pretty easy to live a double life. It is pretty easy to be something in public and something quite different in private. And so we may gain a reputation, and we may even gain honors from people who don't know our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. But God understands our thoughts afar off. Our ways are not hidden from him. He knows our down-sitting. He knows our uprising. He's acquainted with our thoughts, even afar off. Meaning, even before we think them, he knows what we're going to think. That is a cause for fear. That is also a cause for rejoicing. For we will never be misunderstood by God. People may misunderstand us. We may say things that cause hurt that we don't intend to hurt people. We may express ourselves in ways in which we come across a certain way that we didn't want to come across. We may be ill-equipped 
to express ourselves the way we want to. I'm sure you've been in situations where you've wanted to comfort people and you just don't know what to say. You know, you, someone has died and you want to reach out to them, but, but what do you say to them? How, how, how do you convey? There may be somebody that you're really concerned about. How do you approach them? So you pray for them, but you don't know. You know what's the right way to rebuke? How, how do I encourage? What do I say? God knows all of that. God knows all the good. He knows all the bad. And of course, Romans teaches us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So see, God will pass judgment on every act, whether that is good or bad. For God will bring every deed into judgment. For some reason, we tend to think of the word judgment as a negative word, but all that judgment is is a, is a de- determination. It is not negative or positive word. It's just a determination. He's going to pass judgment. He's, he's going to make a declaration. He's, he's going to make a pronouncement. And he's going to say what is good is good, and he's going to say what is bad is bad. He's going to make a declaration as to what we've done and how we have lived and how we have gone about doing his will and his purpose. And he will commend, well done. And the righteous, the unrighteous, he will rebuke. So, number one, this includes the idea of reward for the believer. And this includes the idea of punishment for the non-believer. There is life beyond the sun. That's an important element as we look at life and we wonder why it is that the evil prosper. Psalm, the psalmist answers that question. And he talks about the fact that his foot had almost stumbled until he entered into the house of the Lord, and then he understood their end. It can look like evil is never punished, and it can look like good is never rewarded. And that may be true in this life. There may, people, there may be people that go to their, their grave having cheated on their taxes, cheated on their wife, done all kinds of things, and there seem to be no comes up and There seems to be no problem. That it doesn't seem as though they've ever been caught. And maybe they aren't. And there be good people, righteous people, that have lived their whole life in relative obscurity, that receive very little praise, that they give very little thanks, that don't seem to be rewarded in this life monetarily or, or other ways. And it can seem like there is no value or benefit in having lived this, this godly life of seeking to fear God and keep his commands. It seems like it doesn't pay off. The reward and the punishment is not this life. It's the life to come. And without eternity in view, life can seem very, very random, very unfair. And we can ask, 
Where is justice? And we can even ask, where is God? Why does he allow this to happen? Now is not the time for judgment, which means reward and punishment. That is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the life to come. So final conclusion to the series. A, life may seem random, but there is a purpose, there is a meaning to life. That purpose is to fulfill God's will for our lives. That will is best discerned by simply keeping God's commandments. Now, again, I I don't want to be uh, overly simplistic. And it is important for us to ask the question, what does God want me to do with my life? And uh, how am I supposed to spend my life, my career? Uh, What does God want me to do? Uh, Those are good questions to ask. And as we work through Ecclesiastes, we talked about the desires that God places upon our hearts, uh, those abilities, those gifts, those talents that he's given to us, all of that is taken into account, all right? So as I think about what God wants me to do, I need to look at what my gifts are, how has God equipped me, how has God enabled me, what are my joys, what are my delights, what is going to provide meaning for me, what is going to be a benefit to others. There's a, a myriad of aspects of walking through, and part of that is seeking advice, seeking counsel, wisdom from our parents and, and others. But what I want to stress is the bottom line is if you really want to please God, focus on fearing Him and keeping his commands. And he will lead you. He will direct you. He will make it clear as to what you should do. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That is a, those are two verses that I think many people have memorized and found a great deal of comfort in And it's very true. God will sovereignly direct your paths as you seek him, as you implore him to direct your paths, to lead you. You want him to lead you. And it begins by simply following his word. D, fulfilling God's will is not a guarantee that life will always turn out the way that we planned nor the way that we desire. Can't stress that enough. Fulfilling God's will is not a guarantee that, we will, that life will always turn out the way that we planned nor the way that we desire, for we don't know what God's will is for our life. Jesus was completely obedient to the Father. His will was for Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. We may not always like where obedience leads us. 
But it's not about our pleasure. It's about honoring and glorifying him. And yet, and yet, for the child of God, there is great joy and pleasure in doing the will of God. When again, we focus not solely on this life. For I think you probably know well the verse in Hebrews, for the blank that was set before him. What's the blank? For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame. While Jesus hung upon the cross, he despised the shame, and at the same time, he had joy. For he focused on what was set before him. He focused on what his death would accomplish. He focused on the fact that he would hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In fact, Jesus is exalted to the point where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that forward-looking kept Jesus from the temptation of the evil one when the evil one said to him, worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms. Satan is a deceiver. Satan would not and could not have given them that kingdom. But all kingdoms are given to Jesus. But the pathway was hard. God's will for your life is delightful. It is going to end in praise and glory and an eternity. An eternity. We can't get our minds around eternity as opposed to this brevity of life that is, that is referred to in the scriptures like a breath, like grass that withers. It is so short, and eternity is so long. And it will all be worth it. So D, fulfilling God's will is not a guarantee that life will always turn out the way that we plan, nor the way that we desire. We must realize that we cannot control our destiny. We cannot control our future. My high school motto, I did not go to a Christian high school, I went to a public school, and the motto will reveal it. My, my high school motto in their logo says, in ourself our future lies. It doesn't. It doesn't. In him, our future lies. In him. And there are no schemes, if you remember, as we work through those sections. And there is no method. There are no five steps. There are no keys to life that says you do A, B, C, and D, and E is going to be just fantastic. Just follow the right steps. No, no, no. 
No. We don't know what our future holds. We know who holds the future, but we don't know what our future holds. And there can be just incredibly wonderful days ahead of us. And there can be some dark days. There can be some real struggles. We don't know. We don't know. But we trust God. Knowing that he has a purpose. Knowing that he has a reason. Knowing that our duty is to fear him and keep his commandments. E, we must guard against disillusionment when the ungodly prosper and the godly do not prosper. We must keep in mind that the rewards for good godliness and the punishment for evil is primarily experienced in the next life. We must live our lives by looking to the future and not simply focusing on the here and now. Sufficient unto the own day is its evil thereof. Learn that there is a time and a season for everything. There's a time and a season for everything. Learn when to plant. Learn when to pluck up. Learn when to gather. Learn when to dispense. Learn the proper times in life. That's very, very important. That's Choosing wisely, that's wisdom. And remember, remember, there's a time for reward. There's a time for justice. There's a day in which everything in this world is going to be set right. Justice will reign. Truth will be experienced. Blessing will be had. The time is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. And I pray that in the period in which we live, in which sometimes life seems to be meaningless, and life seems so random, and we can easily become disillusioned because things do not turn out the way we thought they should. And Lord, it's so easy for us, so easy for us to focus on when our hard work doesn't pay off and somehow lose sight of the grace that we experience. That how time after time, the consequence that we should have experienced, we've been spared from. How we have been blessed in spite of, not because of our life. Oh Lord, nothing is by random. Nothing is by chance, and nothing is beyond your control. So, Lord, help us to rejoice in you. Help us to trust you and not our wisdom. Help us to simply decide that we will fear you, that, w- that we will accept, that, w- that we won't work or strive to undo your purpose and your will but we will fear you. And we really want to try to keep your commandments. So help us. For we are frail. We are weak. We are but dust. And the heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that's still true of us, O oh Lord. And sometimes we deceive ourselves in our motives, in our ambitions. So we say with the psalmist David, create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Each and every day, freshen our hearts and our minds and our resolve to love and to worship and to serve you. And Lord, give us faith. Faith not only in today, but in tomorrow. Help us to live under heaven and not under the sun. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.